Hello and welcome to Coach Rich Rants, real takes, raw feedback, unedited and unscripted views of what's happening in youth sports, in soccer, both in the U.S. and in my local community. I will be bringing to you different takes from the perspective of either a parent of an athlete, of a player, of a coach, or as a club director and administrator. Having worn every one of those hats, I'll try to bring to you these takes from each of those perspectives. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to the latest edition of Coach Rich Rants. The topic of today's discussion is about what separates players as they get higher into the continuum of competitive soccer in the U.S., at least from my perspective, from what I've seen. And to give you a backdrop, I'll give you a little bit of what I've been exposed to and what I've seen. And then, you know, you're certainly going to see other things as well. But so I've been for the last 10 or 11 years, I've been involved in club soccer or select soccer, um, where uh, which is participates in primarily the U.S. Youth Soccer Leagues that are part of a state association part of the national championship series. So the way it works is you've got your um, state association league. Then there are regional leagues for some of the better teams in the state association. Those regional leagues compete uh, to, if you win the regional league, you can participate in the national league. Um, And then through the state leagues, the USYS youth championship series, there's also a state cup competition. The winners of that go to a regional competition within the region And then those winners go on to the National Championship Series as well as the National League. So as you can imagine, there's a hierarchy of talent as it rises. Within that system, there's also um, Olympic Development Program, which uh, over the last five or six years, I think, has fallen off. Um, The U.S. Development Academy system, which is, is the highest level of youth soccer in the U.S., Um, came out about 10 years ago, and um, what happened to ODP uh, is that a lot of the the top players went to the Development Academy, and then ODP was left with, like, the second tier, so to speak. In some places, ODP is very good. In other places, ODP is basically not at all, uh, where they basically just take whoever signs up, Um, and it's kind of a sad state of affairs. But like I said, in some areas, it's good. In some areas, it's not so good. Um, So, in addition to the U.S. Youth Soccer Championship Series, there's also U.S. Club Soccer, the highest level league. There's National Premier Leagues, and then there's um, ECNL, which especially for girls is the top level league. Um, there's also a girls academy, but it's only in its second year. So there's a, been a lot of discussion around the ECNL still being superior league to the, uh, the girls DA, but we'll see what happens. So I've been able to witness um, play at every one of those levels I just mentioned, either by coaching or, you know, having a child that plays in that environment. I've also had an opportunity to watch some professional clubs from Europe come over to the U.S. to run regional ID camps and then national ID camps. I've participated in both of those. And I've also gone to England to watch players that were selected from those national camps participate against academy age kids for some top academies. I've had exposure to uh, the academy program and the academy coaches from both West Ham United and from Wolverhampton and learned a lot in my own coaching from that and have gotten to see players sort of at all those levels. What I will tell you the difference I've seen, and I've said this and 
a lot of people will tell you the same thing. The difference when you get to those levels and the difference between one player and the next is primarily based on speed of play and decision-making. And as the level goes higher and you take a team that you coach into the regional level, onto the national level, or what have you, or as an individual player who goes and gets exposed to that level, speed of play and decision-making are extremely important. And that's often what differentiates players. It's very, you know, every player at that level as you go higher, is going to have a good first touch. Every player at that level is going to be a phenomenal athlete. And they're not there because they've spent the 10,000 hours and they worked their butts off. And they did do that. Yes, absolutely. All those kids worked really hard and all those kids spent a lot of time. But that's not the only reason they're there. They're there because they may have something a little bit special, um, right? They may be gifted athletically, And then when you add willpower, drive, determination, sweat, equity, you know, and hard work all along, that's really typically a characteristic that a lot of those players have at the next level. And because of that, they can play very quickly. They can play quickly because they have a good first touch. They can play quickly because they have good vision and good soccer IQ, which contributes to the speed of play. So here's what I'll say. Speed of play and decision-making separate the elite players from the top players, the good, the very good, the great, the excellent, the elite, whatever. That all, all that separation is typically speed of play and decision-making. And there's some factors that go into speed of play, and there are factors that go into decision-making. And there are some things that you can do as a parent to help your child improve their speed of play and decision-making. There are things that you can do as a coach, and coaches do this. In fact, primarily I see today coaches working more on speed of play and decision-making or what they think are speed of play and decision-making, and more on that later, than anything else. Um, And as a player, you can work to improve your speed of play and decision-making. So parent helping their kids, kids on their own, and coaches can all work on things that will improve their speed of play and their decision-making, okay? So there's a couple factors that go into both, and I mentioned it briefly. One is soccer IQ. So soccer IQ isn't necessarily decision-making. Soccer IQ, though, can contribute to decision-making and speed of play because you have a knowledge of the game. But they're not the same thing at all, right? So soccer IQ is just your general understanding and knowledge of the game. Things like when you're the last defender, not leaving your feet, unless you absolutely have to. When you're the last defender, not dribbling the ball in front of your goal. When you're the last defender, or when you're a defender, being very careful about when you pass the ball across the goal mouth, right? I'm not saying never dribble. I'm not saying never pass. I'm saying just being aware of when you should and when you shouldn't. That's soccer IQ. Soccer IQ is is understanding the patterns of play. That, yes, when we get the ball at the goalkeeper, we'd like to play the ball wide and use the width of the field. And we play the ball out from the back by going wide. We can change the point of attack through the center mid. We can play the ball. A pattern is to play the ball to the corner and then serve the ball in. Those are understanding patterns of play. Those are understanding things like 
we want to go forward first. We can then go diagonal or square or back, right? Soccer IQ is understanding the passing patterns. It's understanding ball movement. It's understanding that when we are in possession of the ball, that we get wide and we make the field big. It's the understanding that when we lose the ball, that we got compressed. If we're the closest to the ball, that we may pressure and, and our next person to the ball may cover. That's all soccer IQ. And that contributes to decision-making. However, that is not necessarily decision-making. You make a good decision because you have a good knowledge of the game. Maybe you have fewer options because you're aware of the patterns of play or the tactics that you're trying to play on as a team. So that's your soccer IQ. So players can get soccer IQ by playing. They learn it through their coaches. They learn it from watching it on TV. They learn it from playing Xbox for real, like Xbox and PlayStation, playing FIFA. There's a lot of soccer IQ that can be learned and how different tactical formations work by playing video games, believe it or not. Because I know kids that know more about soccer than their coaches, in some cases, I swear, from because they've learned it by playing FIFA. So that's not an excuse to go play FIFA, so you learn the game. I'm just saying that's a place where you can pick stuff up. And anyone that thinks I'm full of crap really then doesn't have experience with someone who's played a lot of Xbox or like a lot of PS, uh, PlayStation to, and spends time on, uh, on uh, what you call it, on, uh, on FIFA. So anyway, so I digress. So that's soccer IQ, and that does contribute to decision-making. But decision-making is like, what do I do when I get the ball? What do I do before I get the ball? What is my movement off the ball? Can I move to a position on the field that creates space for my teammate to draw a defender away? Can I move on the field in a position off the ball to um, be an option for my teammate? That's decision-making. When I receive the ball, can I shoot? Can I pass? Can I dribble? Those are all decisions. And when I pass, do I combine to do a one-two? Or do I pass the ball and move into space? Do I drop the ball back? Do I play the ball square? Do I play a through ball? Do I play defeat? Do I play into space? Do I go to the corner and serve it? Or do I try to make, you know, dribble along the baseline? Those are all decisions that are made all over the field in the game of soccer. When the goalkeeper picks up the ball, do we quickly distribute it by rolling it out of the back? Or do I let my defenders get out and up the field and try to distribute a long pass? Those are all decisions that get made um, on the soccer field. So decision-making is really important. And the speed of decision-making is enhanced by having good technical skills, a good first touch, and great IQ or awareness. But the one thing that contributes to decision-making that I think is special that is very difficult to teach is vision. And vision is seeing the field and seeing the game, seeing the runs, seeing the passes that other people don't see. And seeing those before the play develops. Seeing that there's a through ball opportunity into space behind the defenders that other kids don't see. Or seeing that run behind the defenders into space that maybe your teammate with the ball doesn't see until you make that run. So that vision, that being able to see the field and see the play develop and watch the game evolve in front of you or behind you even by checking your shoulder, that decision-making or that vision 
contributes to better decision making. Okay, so vision is very important. And at the next level, those kids have it. I've seen very few kids at that level, at the academy level, and I've watched a lot of academy training sessions for two different academies, and I've watched a lot of games. And I will tell you that there are very few kids at that level that don't also see the game very well. They see the game well, they make good decisions, and they play quickly. And that's a big difference. So how do we get better at vision? That's just something that is from experience. Having good soccer IQ to know where to look, Having time, having awareness, not only when you're on the ball, but off the ball. Those are things that will contribute to your vision. But vision sometimes I think is a little bit more innate than anything else. And less about like knowledge, less about knowledge of the game. The vision and seeing what's happening is really to me, from what I've seen, kids that really can see the game are ones that just, it's just a bit different, right? Um, It's like a quarterback seeing the field, not by doing their checkdowns and going through their progressions, but actually seeing exposures and coverages and understanding the defense that they're playing against so well that they can see an exposure and coverage. And the one thing about soccer is that there are new, no two plays that are ever the exact same ever. Everything is unique and everything is different. And what's very important for players to be able to do to play quickly or to be successful is to be able to problem solve on their own. Which is why when you have a coach barking directions on the sideline and joysticking a player, while parents of younger kids will say, why don't the coaches coach more? What they don't realize is that they're actually hindering the development of their player or their, their son or daughter by telling them what they should be doing. Because you are then being their eyes, you are then being their vision, and they aren't able to make decisions for themselves because somebody is telling them what they need to be doing. So having that constant instruction around where they should go and what the play is actually um, takes away from their ability to see the game and see the field and problem solve. So their decisions aren't going to be as quick because they're relying on someone else to tell them what to do. So parents, one way you can support your son or daughter in their decision-making is just to shut it on the sidelines. There's no reason for you, even cheering sometimes, I think, when I've talked to players, gets annoying from kids. They don't always like to hear the cheering. They'd rather just be quiet and listen to their teammates. And that's a shocker because there's a lot of, you know, there's silent sidelines, there's all this talk about parents not talking or coaching. And then I hear parents justify their coaching by saying, well, the coaches aren't coaching. Well, maybe that's by design. But there are some coaches that I consider that I I think overcoach. I watched a game this weekend in the development academy system where the coaching did nothing but yell kids' names. So there was no instruction. There was no talk after the play. There was no, hey, what could you have done different? It was yelling a kid's name. That was it. I don't think that's very useful either. So I would say that the instruction from the coaches should be minimal at best and allow the kids at a young age to problem solve. And if they can solve the problem themselves or with a teammate by combination, that's going to improve their speed of play. That's going to help with their vision. And that's going to also improve their soccer IQ because they're going to know situationally what to do and where. Right. And there are so many different combinations of plays that could happen on a field. And that's the beauty of the game. That's why they call it the beautiful game. 
Because when you see something happen and when a team strings together multiple passes and it results in a goal, that's why they call it the beautiful game. Okay. So that's how you can help with decision making. That's how you can help with vision. And that's how the soccer IQ contributes. But the other things about decision making that is missed, I think, by most coaches is right now there's this whole new effort in the U.S. of Ken because it's in reaction to the U.S. not making the World Cup last year. And that is this model of play, train, play. And they do play, train, play a bit in England. I've seen it. But it's more of a play, a show-up game where the kids organize themselves. They play at the beginning of practice. It, it, it uh, serves as a warm-up, and it also helps with their uh, organizational skills and their leadership skills. I myself have done it at times, and I really like it because it allows kids to problem-solve. They referee themselves. They organize themselves, and so I'm not coaching that. So you'll see that in U.S. soccer where they're going to play structured soccer in the beginning. Then they're going to train about what they just saw, and then they're going to try to play at the end and see if they can make improvements. To me, I think that's a reactionary coaching style. It doesn't necessarily follow a progressive curriculum, so you've got to be very careful and disciplined that you are teaching what you need to teach, when you need to teach it during the seasonal year based on their age, and that you have to make sure you build upon a foundation from the youngest age to the oldest. So from U18 to U, or from U8 to U18, you've got to have a progressive model to teach the kids the proper foundation as you go. So the play, train, play model could work very well, but it could also backfire if not done correctly. That said, there is a lot of emphasis now on teaching kids to play soccer within the game of soccer. And there are proponents that say, you really need to teach the kids to play in the game of soccer to understand the game of soccer. But for me, speed of play has to just be game conditions. Game conditions can be done in small-sided games. Game conditions can be done in 1v1. There is no better place for a player to get lots and lots of repetition at making decisions than by playing one-on-one games. So when you're teaching different skills, Let's say you're teaching a category of moves of change of direction to get away from the defender as the defender approaches you. Teaching those skills alone is not enough. But when you teach those skills and then you insert pressure and you make it a game and you play in game speed to a goal, those things will help players increase their speed of play and with their decision making. Because the player is constantly being asked to make decisions and problem solve in a one-on-one situation. Do I take the player left? Do I take the player right? Do I use my left foot? Do I use my right foot? Do I pull the ball behind me? Do I pull the ball in front of me? Do I stop and start? Do I attack? Do I shoot? When do I shoot? Right? Or do I dribble? Those decisions are being made constantly in a one-on-one environment. When you move from a one-on-one environment to a small-sided game, then it's, do I play the ball early? Do I play the ball late? Do I draw the defender? Do I combine and get the ball back? Do I play the ball and do I move away? Those are all things as a player in a small-sided game that contribute to decision-making. They're constantly being asked to problem-solve and make decisions playing in a 1v1 situation or in a small-sided game. As a defender, do I tackle the ball? Do I hold the player up? Do I funnel him? Do I direct the player to the sideline? Do I direct the player to a teammate who's defending? Those are all decisions that a defender makes. Do I have to leave my feet and slide tackle out of desperation or because I have a good tackle opportunity? Those are all decisions that defenders need to make. And defenders learn from those um, decisions and players with the ball learn from the decisions that they make. So nothing better at a young age to develop their first touch, to develop their confidence and comfort on the ball 
to develop their speed of play than to put them in a situation, in a 1v1 situation or a small-sided game because it works on decision-making, it works on speed of play, and it helps with vision. How does it help with vision, you say? Well, you need to be able to look up to see where the defender is and see where the goal is so that when you take a defender in a direction, you're allowing yourself either to find another teammate in a small-sided situation or you're getting yourself in a position to go to goal. So that vision and that awareness, right? When to turn, when to go away, when to stop and start, what moves to use along the sidelines versus in the box, what moves to use on, you know, in the back of the field or in the corner. Those are, again, all decisions that you can make when you're playing small-sided games or 1v1. So at the youngest ages, coaches that encourage 1v1 play, encourage those skills, are teaching kids to make decisions, are teaching kids to play quickly because they've got the repetition and they start to understand and recognize when they get to a game situation, what moves work and what moves don't work. So rather than get the ball and think, do I pass or do I shoot? Do I pass? Do I dribble? Which they do. Typically, you see kids that don't know what to do, get the ball, stop the ball, and then pick their head up and look around. So first, I go back to this, and I said it before. When a player gets the ball, they shouldn't ask for the ball unless they know what they're going to do with it. They need to know what their options are by checking their shoulder, by surveying the field, and seeing what plays are on before they ask for the ball. And then when they get it, they shouldn't look up and say, now what? They should know exactly what they're going to do. Can I shoot? Because the objective, after all, is to shoot. So the first question as they receive the ball is, can I shoot? Can I pass? Can I dribble? If that play that they planned in their mind or that plan that they played in their plan in their mind does not work because it changed from by the time they got the ball, then they have to respond, react, and problem solve again. So putting players in that situation will allow them to become faster players and make better decisions and faster decisions if they're developed the right way at the youngest ages. And that holds true through every age. So as a coach or coaches, when you're working on possession games, when you're working on small-sided games, encourage the players to problem-solve all of the time. And there is a lot of direction that goes into some of these activities that coaches are doing. And the direction is really teaching the pattern of play and teaching a, using a small-sided game to teach the larger game by relating the small-sided game to the field and, and places on the field where they need to execute. So those activities that happen from a coach's perspective are good because they want to teach repetition, they want to teach patterns, but be careful, coaches, that you're not taking the decision-making away from the player and you're not taking vision away from the player by directing too much within those small between those possession-style games, those, whether that's you're working on possession and transition, whether you're working on counterattacking, whether you're working possession in the back and building out of the back, when you're positioning, we're working on transitioning through midfield or possession into the final third and attack. Those are all different activities that you can do in different side parts of the, the field. And you do have to teach the patterns, but be careful not to teach too much where you're directing so much that the kids can't problem solve. And then when you get to a game situation and it occurs, they don't recall that. They can't remember that. They don't execute that. And then you find yourself in a situation where you're joysticking the players. So parents, the way you can encourage your player to constantly be problem solving, learning the game and making decisions is putting them in environments where they're getting lots of touches on the ball in a one-on-one -on -one situation or small-sided games. 
That could be 3v3. That could be futsal. That could be going to specialty skills training. All of those things that are giving them repetition is important to add to what they're doing in their team training. More importantly, and most importantly, and perhaps what is the most missed, is just allowing kids to learn to play street soccer or learning to play pickup soccer by having them go out to the park in their backyard, to the cul-de-sac, throw up a couple of shoes or a, a little goal and playing pickup soccer. Because more and more decisions are made, more and more things are tested, more and more problem solving is done by playing pickup soccer probably than anything else. Where there's nobody, there are no voices other than the voices of themselves playing themselves. Those opportunities are the best opportunities for players to really make decisions, learn creativity, learn what works and doesn't work. So parents, encourage your kids to go play free. Play free play, right? Just go out and play free play soccer. Don't worry if they're not working on their technical skills while they're out there training. Make their outside training fun. If they train on their own, which I believe they have to if they want to make it to the next level, it's great to have some structure, but you also need to make it fun and creative for them. Try not to over-regiment their home-based skill acquisition programs or their home-based training. Yes, it's good to have patterns to follow, but allow the kids to be flexible with how they do it. Don't be out there with them as a drill instructor parent taking the fun away from their training. So that's another way you can encourage your kids to get them outside, get them inside, get them put a clearer space in the basement or the garage where they can train if you have weather. Make it fun for them, make it a challenge for them where it's not all about doing homework or all about doing work because I've seen that backfire. I've implemented it myself and I've seen it be very effective and I've seen it backfire where there's been too much rigor on the homework. So you've got to be careful with that. So parents, great opportunity for you to encourage your player to work on their speed of play by being able to make better decisions. The other thing that you get out of working on it on their own, doing homework, playing street soccer, is all of that repetition and all of those touches that they get on the ball is going to improve their comfort on the ball. It's going to build their confidence and it's going to improve their first touch, which is also going to allow them to play quicker. Coaches who are doing limited touch in practice, one and two touch, is going to improve the speed of play for sure. It's also going to work on patterns of play because when you play one and two touch, a lot of times that limits your decisions you can make because you only have one or two touches. So you've got to problem solve with that one or two touches that you have and move before you get the ball to put yourself in a position to find that next teammate in a one or, uh, in a one or two touch scenario. So that is great if you have coaches that are doing that. Coaches, I would encourage you to do that. But the only way that's going to work well is if those kids have a very good first touch or very good control with both of their feet. And how do you get that? By having kids spend time on the ball. And it goes back to that one-on-one situation, that one player, one ball training, where they're doing ball mastery, where they're working with multiple surfaces of both feet. And that should happen throughout their entire soccer career. Coaches, please stop stop stopping that activity at 9 or or 10 years old. I see coaches that say, we're going to work on the foundation at 8, 9, or 10 years old. They get to be 11. They stop working on all that skill-based stuff. The kids aren't getting nearly as many touches and all of a sudden their touch isn't as good as it used to be and they can't execute the patterns of play. They can't execute in a one or two touch situation when when you're trying to get them to play quickly. And then you go up against a team that's very good at one and two touch with very good touch and you say, our players aren't good enough. 
Well, no, it's not that your players aren't good enough. It's that your players aren't trained enough. They're not doing the things that allow them to have a very good first touch so that they can play quickly. So to recap this whole thing, the next level includes players that can play very well in a one and two touch situation that speed of play is very important. Speed of decision-making and the quality of the decision-making is very important. And that was what differentiates players at that top level. And the best way to do that is start early and putting your players in situations where they're forced to make decisions all of the time. And stop coaching and stop instructing from the sidelines. Stop joysticking if you're a coach and allow the kids to problem solve on their own. Challenge the kids to solve them, solve the problem. If you're going to stop them and make a coaching point, don't, buy, don't tell the kids what you saw. Ask the kids what happened and what they may have seen before you tell them what you just saw. That is a great way for kids to problem solve. So parents, coaches, and players, if you listen, players especially, don't be afraid to take a player on. Don't be afraid to shoot when you get the ball. Don't be afraid to pass it in one touch. Don't be afraid to hold the ball if you need to. Just know that there's no wrong decision if you learn from it. Whether it's success, the decision leads to success, or this decision leads to a turnover, if you learn from that decision, there's no wrong decision. Parents, you would be, um, it would be helpful for you to understand that as well, that if they're not making mistakes, they're not learning. If they're not learning, they're not improving. Coaches, same. So coaches, parents, players, encourage these kids to problem solve on their own. Encourage them to get a variety of different activities where they're forced to make decisions, where they're forced to see the game, where they're forced to play quickly, and that will improve their speed of play and their decision-making so that when they get an opportunity to get to the next level, they're ready for it. And that that speed of play and that decision-making that they get at an early age will help them surpass other kids that aren't getting it, and it will allow them to get to the next level sooner. So good luck. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to share this with others that you think might find this to be beneficial. I'm only sharing my perspective from what I've seen, but I do believe that there's a lot of merit to it because I've tried some of this stuff out for a long period of time. I've got some evidence and research of of where it works and even where it doesn't. And so what I'm sharing with you is just my experience. That's it. I'm just one coach who's coached a lot of kids who offer some other things. And um, my perspective is my perspective. You may have your own perspective. And I think as someone is uh, either a fan of the game, a parent of a player, a fellow coach or administrator, I find that I always like to learn from what other people's experiences are. And all I'm doing is sharing my experience with you. So you can like it or not like it. I don't really care. If you listen to it, great. If you want to share it, that's even better. If you feel like providing feedback or commentary or you want to give me a shitty rating, go for it. If you want to give me a good rating, I'd appreciate it. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Coach Rich Rants, and I will catch you guys next time. Take care.